Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. This, this is, is a Soul Fire, Fire production. production. Hello, everyone. I'm back. And uh, today it's just me in my home office with my famous uh, daughter's painting on the background. Uh, you know, I was listening to the introduction that gets played every time and they talk about um, our conversational style. Well, um, today it's not going to be a conversation because Bliss is working really hard to get Hope, her Class C RV, ready for her journey. And as you know, we often record uh, a few weeks ahead of when it finally plays. So by the time this plays, Bliss will all be off on her own. We'll be doing some more with Bliss live before she goes, and then uh, we'll be doing them remotely. And I'm looking forward to that as well. But today it's just me, and I'm gonna conversation style with myself, I guess. So uh, here I go. Uh, I wanna just you catch you guys up on a little bit of what's been going on uh, locally here. I just got back from Las Vegas. I had a few days off. I had a gap in my schedule and I took off. And every year, except last year during the uh, lockdowns, uh, I meet a couple of my buddies from Minnesota in Vegas. And we usually play poker in the World Series of Poker. However, the, this year the World Series was moved to October. So we just played in some local tournaments and I played three different tournaments. I cashed in one. So I was very excited about that. I didn't play badly in the others and it was really great having some time away and some camaraderie. And as you probably know, it's extremely hot. Uh, it was about 115 every day in Vegas. And we did a lot of walking. And on the way home, I thought it was interesting. I, when I drove through Baker, California, those of you who know the route on the 15, um, Baker is famous for having the world's largest thermometer. And it was 121 degrees, uh, which is a uh, good thing that my, my car works well. Can't imagine having a uh, mechanical failure or something in the middle of the desert on a day like that. It could be actually quite dangerous. Uh, so that was that. So that's always good to have time off. And I think it, everyone should try to do that when they can. Uh, we need distractions. Keeps us fresh. Keeps us wanting to come back to do what we do. Uh, because in our profession, as you know, burnout is certainly a problem. Bliss and I have talked about that before on the podcast and how we both deal with that a little bit. Uh, I had a nice birth just before a couple of days before I left. Maybe many of you saw that I did a post on Instagram and that's at birthing instincts. You can look that up. I hope you'll, um, I guess it's called follow me there. I'd like to, I'd prefer it to be called fellow travelers than following. I don't like the term following. It sort of means like somebody's a disciple or something, or, you know, somebody's higher than someone else. And I sort of never liked that term, but that's the term that's used. So I'm hoping that you will go to Instagram at Birthing Instincts. And if you don't already follow me, uh, please do. And if you do, um, please share this with everybody so that we can, uh, we're trying to get up to 10,000 followers. I think something magical happens when that, that happens. So I'm kind of waiting to see what, what that will be. I don't know if I get special privileges or I get a blue dot or something. Uh, my assistant, Emily, keeps telling me it's important. So. I do whatever she tells me. Uh, anyway, Amy's birth was great. It was a it was a second time mom. I, I assisted her with her first birth, so this is what I call a legacy client. 
those are my favorites because I know them and also because they're multips, which as everyone who's listened to me knows, I feel is like a different species. You know they're going to have success. You know it's not going to be that long. Uh, you know they're probably not going to tear that. Uh, they know what they're doing. It just makes everything so much easier. This was just a beautiful uh, water birth um, in her bedroom with her husband there. And I, I just watched the video the other day again. And this time I just stared at Andy, the husband. And um, I watched as he just choked up as his baby came out. He looked this, had this concern on his face. And then the baby came out and immediately screamed. And you could just see the tears in his eyes it was great. It was just great. And what's also special about this birth really is it's, unless something strange happens in the next week or so, it will be uh, Bliss's last birth in Southern California. So it's momentous. I'm glad I got to share that with her too. Okay, so some good news. Uh, I'm gonna try to uh, talk about a lot of stuff today. And this is probably mostly the only good news, which is typical of what's going on in the news right now. We're gonna. I'll forecast a little bit. I'm going to talk about some an online course I took just real briefly about some podcasts that I listened to and summarize one that I thought was really valuable. A lot of it has to do with misinformation and the uh, the, the shot. And uh, as my as uh, my friend Nathan Riley on his OB Gynohino podcast, most recent one, he's talking about why he and his wife did not get the shot. And I've not yet listened to it. Uh, it's probably been out now by the time this comes out for weeks, so I will listen to it by then. But I, I'd recommend that. But some good news is uh, I want to shout out to my friend and colleague, Dr. Melissa Drake. She is a hospital-based OBGYN in Santa Barbara. And even though she doesn't want to be, she is now somewhat famous because she got to catch Meghan Markle's, I guess, the Duchess of Sussex. Sussex um, second child at up at Santa Barbara Cottage Hospital. Miss Markle was planning a, or I guess the Duchess was planning a home birth, but apparently something happened that required her to go to the hospital, which was wise. And she had an uneventful birth. And it was really exciting to find out that uh, my friend got to uh, partake in that. You know, a birth to me is just, is a birth and it's a miracle and all that. But this is something where, you know, everyone in the world's eyes were on it for stupid reasons, I think, but that's just the way it works, especially in our country where royalty shouldn't really mean anything. Uh, generally, it means when you are exalted like that, that you're probably, I wouldn't say stupid, but you probably do in, uh, in some, place, some places might be considered um, a detriment or a, or a downside to being being famous in this country because a lot of people like they, they may follow you but but they seem to be a lot of there's a lot of stupidity out there anyway nonetheless uh it reminded me of a podcast that we did on number 143 if you look back the title of the podcast was who is megan markle and has she had her baby yet which was about the first time she was pregnant and there was news every day about megan markle's pregnancy and there was absolutely no news so this one's news and uh I feel like less than six degrees of Kevin Bacon away from it. So that's kind of exciting for me. I uh, recently also took a course online, an academic course sponsored by the University of California at San Francisco. And listening to the lectures, I, I, I'm gonna have to go back and listen to more of them because it was while I was working and stuff, but they're all recorded. So it, since it's a webinar format, I can go back and listen. 
And uh, one of the things I noticed is how academicians talk differently than regular people. They just talk differently. They talk differently than probably you and I talk to each other and to our clients. And as I listened to a, uh, to a um, group webinar on fetal monitor tracing evaluation, and they, all, they talk about, they, they would put up tracings and they would show, tracings for those of you who don't know are when you wear the belts in the hospital and the monitor records the, uh, the heartbeat of the mom, the heartbeat of the baby and the um, contraction pattern. And they look at those things. The mom's wearing like a pulse ox on her finger, of course, because that's always necessary for a woman laboring. Uh, so that's all on this monitor tracing. We call this strip because it used to be on paper. Most of the time now it's electronic. And sometimes they do paper too. I guess that's for medical legal purposes. But they're looking at it and they're talking about the piece of paper as if that is what they're treating. It's interesting to listen to them talk. Uh, sitting outside in my home, watching these people on, on a, like a Zoom meeting type thing, talking to each other about the tracing. And they would say things like, well, what would you do now? Would you, would you give her tributylene? Would you, would you give her oxygen? Would you wait longer? Would you put a vacuum on? Um, but in the whole process, they never talk about, well, why don't we discuss with the patient? Why don't we tell the patient what's going on and let her decide whether she wants the baby out now or she wants to wait a little bit longer. Um, and as they were talking about this, the tracing that they were showing kept getting worse and worse and worse. And the baby came out with a pH that was below seven. And if you, that's just a horrible pH. And if they would have done something a half an hour earlier, an hour earlier, as they probably should have, if they were just thinking about talking to the patient or the client, as we like to call them, and giving them the option saying, listen, we think your baby is having some problems right now. Uh, we could help your baby out, or we could just sit here and wait, or we could give you some medicine to slow your contractions down, or we could do this or that, or give you an IV or do a bowl issue with fluid or all these things they're discussing when um, the woman might say, well, listen, if my baby's in trouble and you can get help the baby out and I don't think I can push it out in the next 10 minutes, let's just get it out. But they, they never bring in I shouldn't say never. I've always hesitated when I hear people say always or never or talk with such certainty. So I'm going to back off on that and scold myself. But they, they in this case, they just don't seem like they, they think like you or I would think in, in discussing it and you share decision-making in the process. Now, maybe they do and maybe for academic purposes, but these are the people that are teaching the future generations of of doctors, how to be doctors. And this is how they're, they're thinking and they're not thinking in a more global picture. So I just found that interesting and disturbing at the same time. You know, I get most of my CMEs, which are my continuing medical education credits from an ultrasound journal that I get or from teaching myself and, and, um, and getting credits for those. But uh, every now and then it's good to take a, a refresher class. And so that's, I saw this one online and I decided I would take it. And because there were some topics that were interesting to me, uh, and I, I still have to go back and listen to them. And if there's any other real pearls, I'll bring them up in some future podcasts. And I'm sure Bliss would have comments on this as well. Okay. So the next thing I want to get into is a podcast from a reporter or a journalist, a true journalist who I trust 
And I just listened to her most recent podcast today, which was, um, let's see, it was podcast. Oh, it's called uh, podcast number 98. Uh, it's called Bad Sources. And she talks about how journalists should do things and how other journalists keep making what she calls mistakes. I, I think she's being kind when she says that, when she says that um, journalists are making mistakes by taking things from anonymous sources, which are really friendly sources that they know, but they quote them as anonymous sources, but they're actually operatives for politi political operatives who are giving them information. And the information always ends up being wrong. And if she says, as a journalist, if I was getting information from a source and it continued to be wrong, I would actually change the way I reported or I would not use those sources anymore. But these reporters are not reporters anymore. They're just, uh, they're activists, they're political activists. The New York Times said that a couple of years ago. They came out and said that their mission is no longer to report facts and let you decide. Their mission is to shape how you think. And so we all need to know that when we're watching main, mainstream media. Uh, but Cheryl Atkinson is the person I'm talking about. And she did a podcast on June 4th. And I'd like to summarize some of the things she says. She talks about, uh, this is mostly about the vaccine. And she says that the term anti-vaccine is propaganda. And I've, I think we've talked about that before as well. And whenever it's used, it should say much more about the one who uses it than the person they're targeting it at. Because most people who are questioning this particular vaccine are not anti-vaccine, but it's a pejorative. It's a way, as we said, as I've said many times before, the way you deal with cognitive dissonance is you ignore the data from the other side. You impress the data that supports your position, and then you ridicule anybody who disagrees with you. So she goes on to talk about vaccine discrimination, which is the, where the vaccine passport is just one form of this. And she says the lack of legislation, which is she thinks right now is purposeful, leaves the private sector to discriminate. So what's happening here is the political sector doesn't have the will or the um, cachet to, to pass le legislation mandating certain things. So they do nothing. And then they, they make it, they influence businesses to do the work for them. So it seems like she says we're returning to segregation. A friend of mine uh, who is a, an actor in Hollywood has been offered a role in a movie, but he can only have the role in a movie, and it's a good role too, if he's vaccinated. So we all may have this. If you work for a large corporation, there are some nurses in Houston at Houston Methodist who are are, I think they're suing their hospital. I know that they have tried to avoid the legal aspect of it initially by, by saying that they thought it was wrong to force young people, especially women of reproductive age, to have a vaccine to work there, that that's a violation of so many different rules and, uh, uh, and just ethics. Um, but also uh, my friend's dilemma is that he doesn't, he's a young, healthy guy. He doesn't believe in this vaccine. He's actually had COVID. He's recovered. He has positive antibody titers and he can't have the role unless he's vaccinated. So uh, there's so much today that will be my dumb doctor dogma, but this is, the, this is one of them. This is the same thing that like universities are trying to make students who've had COVID who are already immune get the vaccine in order to come back to college. This sort of, this is gonna segregate us. So we're gonna have We've already had rock concerts where uh, 
here in LA, the Foo Fighters had a thing at Canyon Club where uh, if you could only come into their show, if you could prove you were vaccinated. And there are other places that are selling tickets for a show for like $18 if you're vaccinated, $1,000 if you're not vaccinated. So we're going to end up with discrimination and segregation, and they're another way to divide us. Uh, vaccination should be an informed personal decision, uh, Cheryl Atkinson says, after weighing individual risks and benefits. That's a no-brainer. That is the ethics of our profession. And everyone that probably listens to my podcast knows that that's the case. But why we have to keep repeating it is because for some reason, it's not obvious. Many act like they are certain of their position, but actually little is really known. So they really know nothing. I love when she says that because that's something I also say all the time is these people who spout certainties actually know nothing. The CDC says 40% of the general population is fully vaccinated, but only 23% of the military. And as of the early June, it was still voluntary in the military. I'm not much sure how much longer that's going to uh, last. By congressional testimony, less than half the workers at the NIH or the CDC are vaccinated. The military has reported some deaths from the vaccine. So if it can injure a 220 pound man, what can it do to a baby? Cheryl says she asked the military uh, about this, but she was stonewalled and did not get an answer. The Highwire uh, is another podcast that I support a lot. And um, their most recent one, the Dirty Deeds, it's called. Uh, it's over two hours long. I would not, you know, I don't know if many of you have that much time to watch it, but um, at the one hour and 25 minute and about 30 second mark, they get into a talk with this pathology expert on uh, fertility and the uh, spike protein. So it might be worthwhile for those of you um, of reproductive age who listen to the podcast, want to learn more, you can go to the High Wire's most recent podcast called Dirty Deeds at about the one hour and 25 minute mark. Let's see. I know I say okay a lot. I've, I listen to my own podcast sometimes. Do you ever listen to yourself speak? Probably most of you don't, but it is interesting to listen to yourself speak. And then you pick up all your little idiosyncrasies. And you go, God, do I really do that? Do I really shake my head? Do I use my arm a lot? Because I know I do that too. The FDA website, Frequency Asked, Frequently Asked Questions, states that there is no evidence the vaccine can prevent transmission. This is also true for pertussis, by the way. Um, so it's interesting because the FDA's own website says that the vaccine can't prevent transmission. And possibly up to 30% of those vaccinated are not protected. So, how, so we also have no idea how long immunity after, will last after vaccination. Interesting, I'd like to, I'd like to digress for just a second because uh, up to 30% of those vaccinated are not protected. And about a month ago, another absurdity or another dumb doctor dogma which would make a segment all by itself, was when John Rahm, who is a professional golfer, was leading a tournament by six shots going into the final round when he had a positive COVID test, and he was abruptly taken out, not because he was deathly ill or struggling to swing a club, but because he came into contact with someone who had the virus, okay? So the, here's the picture. The guy is a 26-year-old athlete playing an elite sport with no contact, no symptoms, in the wide open sun, outdoors, leading a tournament after 54 holes, and finds out that he's ill by a swab that, that has some huge, crazy threshold issues and, and false positives. And he's asymptomatic and he'll have to remain in isolation for two weeks. So this is the chance of a lifetime. It's got over, it's at over a million dollars to the winner. 
And um, he was pulled out because he had a swab that tested positive, even though he's perfectly fine playing an outdoor sport, not near anybody. He, however, is, a, is an example of dignity because his response was, quote, I'm very disappointed in having to withdraw from the Memorial Tournament. This is one of those things that happens in life, one of those moments where how we respond to a setback defines us as people. I'm very thankful that my family and I are okay. I will take all of the necessary precautions to be safe and healthy, and I look forward to returning to the golf course as soon as possible. Thank you to all of the fans and for their support. I'm looking forward to watching the showdown tomorrow afternoon with you all. So this was a statement the night after the third round where he found out that he was going to be held out of the fourth round of the golf tournament. Now, you know, I don't know if Mr. Rahm wrote this himself or he had an agent that wrote it for him, but nonetheless, it is full of dignity. I don't know how many of us could feel this way um, after something that is so stupid. It is, it is just, it's so stupid. Everything that's happening right now, first of all, they've been wrong about everything. And they've misled us purposely about everything and everything that they told us to do pretty much everything. Again, I can't say ever, always or never, but it's been wrong or stupid. I mean, the wet sand, dry sand, how, how many people you can sit around a table and have dinner and how long you can sit there together and how, and, and, and how many people you can have on a boat and all these, they, I mean, they actually did this stuff. It's, it's insanity. We, ha we have a pandemic of insanity. Uh, this is a, a perfect example of it. When I heard this, I was furious. I don't, even, I don't even watch golf that much. I watch the majors, but I, I'm not even a fan of golf. I'm not a fan of baseball or any of these sports much anymore. Hockey, yes, but, every, but pretty much everything else, no. And uh, I was furious because of the stupidity. I think I get more angry at stupidity than I get at pretty much anything else. And, we have, and, the, and the most dangerous people in the world are people who are smart but act stupidly because these are not dumb people, people who reach the level of, of, of academia or political uh, heights. You, you can't be, uh, you know, you're stupid. But as William Buckley once said, and I couldn't agree with him more, I'd rather be governed by the first, what is it, 537 people in the Boston phone book than the, than the academics or the professors at Harvard University. Your average plumber, your average woman that works at the grocery store, your average waiter um, has more common sense than, than these people. And they just follow blindly. Um, they're all lemmings. And the idea that this guy who's perfectly healthy, who's playing outdoors, can't finish the tournament. They maybe okay, I mean, <laughs> the gallery still, they keep the gallery way away from him anyway. His caddy could voluntarily work for him or not. I mean, I'm sure his caddy would be happy to work for him. He kept, I mean, they don't even give him the option. They put in these one size fits all rules and we're stuck with that. And that's why we're going to talk in a little while. We're going to get to about how bigger things are, the, the worse they are. Um, Dennis Prager says the bigger the government, the smaller the citizen. And this is true with every aspect of our lives. When you get big things giving you edicts or guidelines or regulations or, or mandates uh, that everyone has to be the same, like you have to be vaccinated even if you've already recovered from COVID and are immune, um, 
it's such stupidity that it undermines any possibility. And that's probably why only 40% of the general population are vaccinated. If you haven't gotten your vaccine by now, you don't need to be bribed by free pizza or a lottery ticket or whatever else, the donuts, whatever else they're given, whatever else they're given away. Why would you need to do that? By now, everyone knows they have access to it. Everyone who's got the vaccine now, who wanted it, has gotten it. So the rest of it is going to be coercion. It's going to be forcing people to do something. This is not America. This is not the way it should be. Anyway, we also have no idea how long the immunity will last, she says. So a significant percentage of people will have a vaccine passport. But what will that mean exactly? If we know that the vaccine or the FDA, the FDA says that the vaccine, there's no evidence that it can pre prevent transmission. And we know that at least 30% of those vaccinated are not protected. How does a vaccine passport make any sense whatsoever? Um, as, a, as an example, because I do this sort of stuff so you guys don't have to, is I looked up the efficacy rates of the flu vaccine. There was a, there, I saw something, an article, and I went and looked it up and I printed it out. And over the last, from the years 2004 to 2018, this is the vaccine efficacy rates overall uh, in tests that were done in studies uh, here in the United States. This is from the United States. In 2004 to 2005, the efficacy rate of the flu vaccine was 10%. The highest it ever got was in 2010 and 11, where it was 60%. But I'll just read some numbers uh, going from early to most recent. 10, 21, 52, 37, 41, 56, 60, 47, 49, 52, 19, 48, 40, 38, 29. Almost all of them, I think, but two or three or four were less than 50% efficacy rate. So we're going to give a vaccine that we know doesn't have a 100% efficacy rate, but you get the vaccine and now you have a passport that allows you to go to the Foo Fighters concert. Like, I really want to go to the Foo Fighters concert um, or whatever else they're going to come up with next, whatever restrictions they're going to come up with that are going to just divide us. Again, lunacy, lunacy. Well, these unanswered questions are nonsensical answers as well as marketing and giveaways undermine confidence. I think the numbers of hesitant people answers that question, she says. And that's true. I mean, if you haven't gotten the vaccine by now, it's because you haven't wanted to get the vaccine. And extending it to down to age 12 and eventually down to six months of age is not gonna change. The people who haven't gotten the vaccine are not gonna be having their kids who are under that age get the vaccine. And if they have to do it because they're coerced to do it, like um, so their kids can play in, in high school or collegiate sport, well, not collegiate or adults, but high school or uh, you know grade school sports, then who's gonna be responsible for that? And should we as individual citizens be looking to maybe have lawyers, not my favorite, but maybe have lawyers draw up Forms like I, I think if you remember way back when I did a podcast where I, I came up with an idea of uh, having a hospital sign a consent form saying that you're going to make you're going to make me do a C-section against my will. If anything goes wrong, you're responsible. Um, and the same thing here. If your employer or your school district 
or your whatever is making you get a vaccine to work or to go to school and you suffer an injury, you're not allowed to sue the vaccine company. I'm not sure you even allowed to sue the, the medical people who give it to you. They might be protected under the 86 Act as well. But why can't you send a letter to, uh, to put on file to the principal of the school or the dean of the college or your boss or the human resources department and say, listen, if you're going to force me to get the vaccine, I'm giving you this letter from my attorney that says, if I take this vaccine and because you mandated I take it and now I'm injured, I'm going to hold you, not your corporation, I'm going to hold you personally liable. You hold people personally liable, they may think twice about these mandates. Right now, there's no downside for a, uh, for a company who, who's, whose own lawyers think that they're being clever or they're, they're lowering their liability by saying that you have to be vaccinated in order to work here. Again, I have a logical mind. I can generally look at an issue and see it clearly. And my, and my mind is time tested. I am wrong sometimes, everybody is, but most of the time I'm not. And I look at this and I think that we, you know, we need to start doing this. We need to start pushing back. My, you know, my friend who may not get this acting job because he's not vaccinated, um, you know, he needs to have maybe his agent and his attorneys draw up a contract with the studio and say, listen, okay, if I, you know, I mean, he doesn't want it anyway, so I don't think he'll do it. But, but um, if you're forced to do it, then, then someone needs to be responsible if it injures you. Just, they just do. Okay. Also, uh, Cheryl Atkinson, to continue, says in past pandemics, vaccines were late to the game and they resolved by sanitation improving, these pandemics involved by sanitation improving, therapeutics, and the battle tested healthy immune systems of most people. She says, why did the plague kill one third of Europe, make one third very ill, but recovered, and another third never got sick? Is getting, I mean, it's, it's a question. Is getting vaccinated for everything good for our overall long-term immunity? In some parts of Africa, those receiving the DPT shot had a tenfold increase in mortality from other illnesses. Now, when Cheryl Atkinson says this stuff, I believe her because her whole reputation is based on being factual and people are out to get her. So if she ever quotes something that is hyperbolic or not factual. I mean, the fake fact checkers will come after you and me and everybody else anyway. They're fake, they're, they're fake. But her reputation is completely about, about her integrity. And so when she says that, I believe it. Okay, conversations and research going against the narrative, dollars, money, big pharma, are shut down and not funded or not funded. So anybody who's doing research that is against the narrative is gonna probably, it may lose their funding. Does that give you confidence? In Israel, researchers found statistically significant increases in myocarditis. This is a, something that's been happening and we're discovering more about it. It's not, it can't be coincidental. It has to be somehow related to it. The, the increased rate of myocarditis, especially in young, young boys and men, um, there's no other explanation for it. So when they keep denying that it's related or that the CDC will say it's mild, it's mild myocarditis. Um, in my teaching, there's no such thing as mild, mild myocarditis because myocarditis affects your heart, your heart and affects your heart cells and your heart cells don't regenerate. 
So if you have damaged heart cells, they're not going to they generally don't regenerate. So mild myocarditis might be mild when you're 15 years old, but what happens when you're 35 and now you have congestive heart failure or you have some other problem? How do they even live with themselves when they say something stupid like that? Um, they're finding this myocarditis in young males ages 13 to 19, and many countries reported a temporal increase in the number of deaths in the elderly and infirm who had recovered from COVID and were vaccinated anyway. And I have a personal family story about that, which I, for personal reasons, will not share. But somebody that I know who was elderly, not ill, but elderly, in their late 80s, uh, who had recovered from COVID, um, got the vaccine, and uh, two days later, she was dead. And there was no reason to give her the vaccine, except that the nursing home that she lived in was giving it to all the people living there. And of course, these people are, I mean, she was of sound mind. She didn't know she had any right to say no. And they didn't have to ask any of her family members. So she got the vaccine and two days later, she was dead. Could she have died of natural causes two days later? Yeah. But really? Just when I, when, when, I, when I saw the word Israel there, I just, it reminded me of a video that I just saw. And maybe some of you have seen it by now. If not, search YouTube for it. It's a, it's a teacher announcing in Hebrew that the kids no longer have to wear masks in the classroom. And your initial feeling was like, well, will the kids be nervous about taking their masks off? And the response to the kids is like 60 seconds straight of, of screaming and yelling and cheering uh, of happiness. It, it's, got to, it's got to bring you a smile to your face if you, if you see it. So try to find that on YouTube. Uh, she also ends with, uh, Cheryl Atkinson ends with virologists and infectious disease specialists goal is to prevent the targeted disease as their primary goal. Therefore, their support for broad vaccination. Side effects like autism, autoimmune problems, clotting, and even the cost of their uh, program may not be a primary concern to them because their job as virologists is to prevent the spread of the virus. This is similar in what I've said before to our medicalized birth model of getting a crying baby into the bassinet. By any means, uh, it, which is the focus of maternal fetal medicine specialists and OBs and the hospital administrators. What the C-section rate is, what future pregnancies are affected, how they're affected, patient satisfaction is of little importance to the immediate thing. This is, this is all part of what's going on. And I think that uh, just listening to the sources that I listen to, I know, I mean, we've known this for a long time. But I think it's getting harder and harder for this to be denied anymore that so many mistakes were made and there's so much bullshit going on here. And at some point, you got to think that journalists like Cheryl Atkinson, like Grant Greenwald, these people are going to find sources that are going to come to tell them why were they doing this? What's the reason for this? Was it just money? Was it just power? Was it to get rid of Trump? Is it population control? Um, the fertility issue is something that, that rings dear to me. Not because <laughs> I'm planning on doing that anymore, but, and not because it's my business, but because I, I, I care terribly about this whole thing. And I just, again, stupidity really, really, really angers me. So I beat that horse to death. Some stuff on the, oh, of the American Association of Physicians and Surgeons. I often quote them pretty much about every other podcast. They've got something interesting. 
And this was just a, this is just a small anecdote. Um, I read an article in their journal that said increasing access to medical care from physicians through an associate physician license option. In other words, this was just an editorial. And the idea right now is that why must a medical school graduate have to do an academic residency program in order to get their license? In other words, when you finish medical school, you aren't licensed to practice medicine. You cannot get your license to practice medicine until you've been enrolled at least one year as an intern in a designated academic medical program. So in other words, even after you finish medical school and you have an MD degree, you cannot practice until you've spent at least a year being indoctrinated into the hospital model. You don't have the choice of saying, listen, I wanna practice in a certain way, or I wanna do something which doesn't require me to do a residency or whatever. Why do I have to spend another year doing that? And, and so this, the authors of, of this editorial's name is Jeremy Snavely. I wanna give him credit. And Jeremy says, every year about 8,000 medical school graduates who apply to US residency program currently fail to match with a program. I didn't really know that. That's actually an astounding number. Their progress to entering practice to serve patients is thus set back or in some cases permanently ended. The average graduate in 2017 had more than $180,000 in debt, which naturally will be much more difficult to pay off without being able to practice. He cites an Arizona statute. Uh, eligibility to apply for an Arizona medical license requires successful completion of a 12-month postgraduate hospital internship residency or accredited fellowship program approved by this organization called the Accredited Council for Graduate Medical Education, the ACGME. However, by the time medical school and students graduate, they may have more than twice as much clinical experience as a nurse practitioner graduates who are eligible to apply for a license to practice in Arizona. Medical school graduates have completed a minimum of 65 weeks of supervised clinical training by the time they graduate compared to a minimum of 27.5 weeks for nurse practitioners. So a nurse practitioner graduates from nurse practitioner school and can go out and get a license to practice nurse practitioning, that's a word, in Arizona. But a doctor who has more than twice as many clinical hours in training than the nurse practitioner does has to, has to spend money or get paid minimal to do a whole nother year in order to do the same thing that the nurse practitioner is allowed to do. And the question is, why is that? All right. So maybe um, it's time that we, and this presents a bigger question that I bring up a lot in my conversations with, you know, here with my families and with my friends and with my colleagues about the, uh, the control of our profession is in the hands of people that have run something the same way for a long time and it hasn't served the population well. It hasn't improved outcomes. It basically emboldens them and, and enriches them. Um, the, thing, the same thing with the uh, maintenance of certification for, the, for my board certification, which I've given up. Um, I was board certified way back in the 80s and I maintained it for 20 years. And then they went to um, yearly maintenance of certification. And for many reasons, I decided that that was not necessary the way I was practicing. And um, so now I'm technically not able to say that I'm, I'm current in my board certification, which means that I wouldn't be able to get privileges at a hospital. I wouldn't be able to get coverage. I wouldn't be able to 
be on an insurance plan, not that I'd ever want to be on an insurance plan and take the diminished amount of payment and the requirements and regulations that they'll put on me uh, to what I can prescribe and what procedures I can do and asking permission to do these things. I would never do that anyway, but I would not be allowed to do that because I'm not paying this fee every year to the American Board of Medical Specialties to allow me to continue to practice because they decide and they lobby to keep their power. They decide who gets to, you know, who gets to practice and who doesn't get to practice based on an evaluation that's never been shown to improve outcomes. There's no data that anywhere that shows that, that people who are board certified are better doctors than people who aren't board certified. And there's no data to show that board certification every 10 years or six years or one year, it makes any difference. And yet they just do it and nobody fights them. And maybe it's time for an alternative system to develop. There are people that are trying. The American Association of Physicians and Surgeons is an alternative to the American Medical Association. I'm going to um, lambast the American Medical Association in, in the next topic, next segment. I get to do these things. By the way, when Bliss is in here, as you'll note, I get to talk about whatever I want to talk about. And some of this stuff would bore Bliss to tears. And so I'm, I, would, I would not, we, these are not the kind of topics where we have our conversational style. I, you know, I miss her terribly when I have to do these by myself. This is about the fourth or fifth one that I've done by myself. But I also, it gives me an opportunity that, that I can just go. So here I am going on. Uh, so I wanna talk about the AMA. So let's just do that for just a second. Oh, before I do that, I just, I just thought of some little piece of, of uh, trivia and my memory that came up to me. And it, it gets back to my thing about complicating the simple. And when I came up with that, there, there is a physician in, that, uh, in, in um, I think at, at, in, in, Ma in Massachusetts, I think he's at Harvard, um, Neil Shaw. And he's a, good, he's a good guy. He's stuck between two worlds, but he's a really good guy. And he's trying to make changes in, from his perspective. And you know that, that's a monumental task. I mean, it's a monumental test to make changes of any monolithic system. And, but I think he probably has a better chance from within than somebody like me from without. Uh, but he's trying. But I just remember a lecture that he gave where he talked about um, how things are so complicated and that the labor and delivery unit that he had, that he worked at, at um, I think Massachusetts General or, or Beth Israel Hospital in Boston, um, they had, they, he noted in his talk that he gave that they, were, they had seven different garbage cans in labor and delivery. So they had seven different types of garbage in labor and delivery. And it's, just, it's, it's always stuck with me. I mean, I understand recycling and garbage, okay? Recycling and garbage. And then I added in hazardous waste. And then I don't know what other, the other four cans were for, but they were for something because I do remember the number seven. But it, it always comes back to me that that why in the hospital, if something has blood on it, does it need to go into a red trash basket, which is called hazardous waste, and gets disposed of um, in a more costly to the hospital manner? They have special handling. It has to, I don't know if they can incinerate it or what they do with it. They can't just dump it in trash. But anything that's bloody in the hospital has to go to this special trash bag. But if you cut yourself at home or if you have a tampon or something like that, you throw in the trash. It's blood. What difference does it make? So, but the hospital has complicated the simple. 
And I know, okay, it's a health hazard, but if it's a health hazard in the hospital, right? Sometimes it's infectious, that's different. But anything, even, even like a, an old, a, a bloody Band-Aid or something has to go in the red trash bag. Now, I, I'm sure that there's mistakes made and some trash goes everywhere and no one's, there's been no pandemic of, of uh, bloody trash being, causing diseases or anything like that. But it's more costly. It, it creates more problems, and it's just complicating this simple. So uh, we're sort of running out on time here. God, I had so much more to get into today. You know what? I think I'm going to save. I think we've done enough negativity for today. So I'm going to hold this thing on American Medical Association because that's a whole other conversation. Sometime when Bliss is uh, not available again, I'll go through all that, or maybe I'll even do it with Bliss. We'll see. But I wanted. To, I found something really interesting. Um, I used to write a lot. Before I had podcasting, uh, I used to blog a lot. I used to write a lot. And I was clearing out something and I found a journal that I wrote an article in. Uh, it's called OBGYN Management. It's what we call a throwaway journal. It's still there now. And I wrote an article in September of 1991. And I wanted to share it with you guys because, so we're going to call this a, a Birthing Instincts Flashback. All right. And the, the title of the article is Relative Value Irony. OBs versus termite men. And the subtitle is Between Delivering an Indigent Patient and Arranging to Have Termites Removed from His Family Room, this OBGYN ponders what strange twist of logic makes the exterminator services more valuable than his. By Stuart J. Fishbein, MD, OBGYN, Los Angeles. Many of you know what RVS codes are and what ICDM codes are. They're coding for billing. Uh, RVS codes are relative value scale. They're assigned, you're assigned a value. So like brain surgery carries more value, value than treating a rash on your elbow, right? There, you get paid a certain amount per unit and they give a ner certain number of units. And again, this is complicating the simple. This is, it used to be that doctors charged what they thought was a fair price and people paid what the fair price was. And then we got third-party people involved in administrators and middlemen, and it got all crazy. And then we got people counting beans. And so everything had to have codes. And so now everything has codes. They even have codes for getting bit by a bird. And there's even a, a code that uh, the code, there's separate codes for depending on what kind of bird. And then there's codes for if you get bird, bit by a bird for a second time. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. This is absolutely true. So... This is something I wrote in 1991. I'm just going to read it into the record here. As a requirement for maintaining staff privileges at a local hospital, obviously this is way back when, I'm obligated to cover the emergency room for OBGYN-related problems. Of course, the, the hospital elects neither to pay me for my time nor cover my malpractice liability. On a recent 24-hour shift, I was notified that an indigent patient had arrived in active labor. She was a prima gravita, five centimeters dilated, Nonetheless, the emergency room physician felt that the patient shouldn't be transferred for fear of violating the federal law against patient dumping, which is uh, EMTALA. I think it was still in effect then. Um, so I was told to assume coverage. Now, patient, the, the patient was supposed to go to a county hospital, but the patients in Southern California are very smart. And the word gets around that if you show up in labor at a nice hospital, they can't send you away. So why would anybody go to a county hospital when they can show up at a West Side Santa Monica hospital and know that they're not going to be turned away? It's 
No, I would, I would, I would do that. It's gaming the system. I would do it. I met the patient that evening and in my broken Spanish was able to elicit a benign medical history, but there was no clear rapport. She was pleasant, but quiet. And she labored courageously over the next 16 hours. At that time, the nurse informed me that the patient was completely dilated. By now I was in the middle of morning office hours the next day, seeing my regularly scheduled patients. People who had made arrangements to see me days or weeks ahead of time, probably had to take the morning off from work and were willing to pay me for my services. I now had to cancel these private patients to run off and provide care to a patient not of my choosing. The situation was frustrating to say the least. It angered me to be forced by the hospital to assume liability and responsibility for an unknown patient while ignoring my responsibility to my own reliable and longstanding patients. What upset me more was knowing that the hospital has a family practice residency with a number of in-house residents, all capable of performing a vaginal delivery. But the same bylaws that, quote, volunteer, unquote, my services protect the residents from providing care for patients not in their clinic system. Ludicrous as it may seem, the hospital administration must feel that there's too much risk to allow their residents to care for these patients, but it's okay for me, a private practitioner with my own private malpractice coverage to do so. As it turned out, the baby was persistent occiput posterior, and I elected to assist the delivery with low forceps. After anesthesia kindly placed by, after anesthesia kindly placed a continuous epidural, I delivered the baby occiput posterior over a midline episiotomy. Tell this was five years into my medical practice. Um, uh, I was well trained in forceps, and you know forceps were sort of the standard uh, in the late '80s, early '90s. Still, they were used quite frequently, at least in my training. All of us who have ever sweated through a difficult forceps delivery know that there can be no quantifying the effects that the stress has on us, or the efforts it's taken to acquire the skill to perform such a delivery. While savoring the moment and repairing the episiotomy, my beeper went off. It's funny, term beeper, okay? Um, in those days, you didn't have, all the beeper did was, was buzz, and then you had to call you had to call in. If you've ever seen the movie Annie Hall, this was even before beepers existed. Every time the, the, the doctor character went someplace, he'd call in and say, I'll be at this number for so long, and I'll be at this number, and then I'll be at this number. And then we had beepers, which were invented, which just vibrated. And you went and found a payphone, or if you were in a building, you just borrowed a phone. And then eventually they had beepers that, that flashed little messages or phone numbers on the top, and then you could find a payphone and call back. And then eventually they had cell phones, they invented cell phones. My first cell phone was an eight pound Sony cell phone, kind of like soldiers carry on the battlefield. It had a cord and a box and you carried it, it had an antenna on it and it weighed eight pounds. I wish I had it because it would sort of be a great conversation piece to have in your house someplace. All right, anyway, um, while savoring the moment and repairing the episiotomy, a beeper went off. It was the termite exterminator at my house. He had promptly responded to my desperate call the day before when a swarm of flying termites decided they liked the view from my family room. After a tight squeeze through the crawl spaces under my house, he informed me that I was lucky. No significant damage had been done. My house wouldn't need to be tented. Only drilling and chemical treatment to the foundation would be necessary. That would cost me a down payment of $229 due now and a balance of $1,270 due the coming weekend when the house would be treated. So to get rid of the termites with a two-year guarantee, I'd pay $1,499 up front. Such a deal. Now I'm sure right now, 
those prices, people are laughing at those prices. I'm sure it's a lot more now. Again, think about this, this is 90, 30 years ago. Wow. All right. As I completed the final knot on my, on the, my repair, it hit me. For the last 16 hours, I'd taken on incredible responsibility and liability and used my hard-earned expertise to safely deliver a human being into the world. And for this, the state of California, Medi-Cal, which is our Medicaid, may pay me $500 three to four months from now if I get the paperwork right. And of course, I have to give an 18-year guarantee to the baby. Something seemed dreadfully wrong. How could I justify the pay discrepancy between my job and that of the termite exterminator? Perhaps termite exterminators have a heavy malpractice premium too. Maybe it takes years of training and sacrifice to become a termite expert. I guess there must be a high overhead in the termite industry and maybe the hours are long. Certainly these factors could help explain the discrepancy in pay. Geez, I, I read myself and I was very cynical even back when I was young. There's a picture of me here with no beard and black hair. Interesting. Um, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll try to take some pictures of this and post it uh, on my Instagram. But there had to be more to it. The real lesson in this episode, I realized, is that our society puts little value on health because it's not a tangible thing. Bugs in our houses, out where you can see them, are treated as more significant than bugs in our bodies. With sleep-deprived eyes, I began searching out the relative value code for termite removal. So anyway, I, 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 I hope it, uh, that you know, that may sound arrogant. It may sound that it was a different era. I was a different person back then. But even back then, I began to realize that there's something wrong with the medical system that we have. There is just, there's, it's, it's, it's so disjointed. It's so disconnected from the personable, the reality. Uh, it's profit-driven. It's impersonal. Uh, you know, I, I there, something has to change. It's so broken. And the lockdown and the coronavirus thing has exposed the medical community for some of the fraud that it is. The idea that, you know, we're going to discover as time goes on in the next year or two, hopefully when there's more Cheryl Atkinsons out there, we're going to, we're going to discover what was behind the motivation to lock us all down and to not promote therapeutics like hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin and to mandate vaccines to populations of people that um, rarely were affected by this any worse than a bad flu season, to mandate masks and, and quarantining of healthy people for the first time in human history. They blew it. And I think they knew they blew it early on. And I think there's data coming out if you pay attention. And I think that people listen to me are savvy. And that's why I suggest that you listen to the Del Big Trees, the high wire. You follow people like Glenn Greenwald. You follow people like Cheryl Atkinson. You listen to podcasts by Maren Green or by Nathan Riley or other, other like-minded people, and you're going to get, an, uh, I mean, why do I think I'm honest and uh, my two friends from Cornell are not? You know, I don't know. I'm not monetarily motivated. Uh, I have no conflicts of interest. I have a, a, a great sense of fair play and uh, when something smells wrong or doesn't pass the smell test, it really uh, upsets me. And a lot of people just, you know, they bury their head in the sand, they go about their business, they don't pay attention to it. 
They don't, they don't follow the news. They don't speak up. They don't. And that's how we end up getting these idiots uh, elected to office who, who keep screwing things up and keep getting reelected. So we need to stop that whole cycle. So I guess that's it for today. I think um, it's, it's amazing to me that I can just sit here and look at myself uh, and talk to myself for an hour and know that I could go for another hour and still have, I've got stuff on my desk here that I could go on and on and on and on. But next week, Bliss will be back. We hope that you will share this. I really would like to see what happens when I get to 10,000 fellow travelers on, uh, on Instagram. So please share this. Please give it, uh, send it to like-minded people. The only way we're going to change what's happening is to for the grassroots to keep spreading and for us to make the people that are making these dumb decisions very, very uncomfortable. So until next time, I'll say bye. And for Bliss, I'll just say bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram. 